This episode is brought to you by Background Checks for Friends. Ah, good times, good memories, that's what friendship is all about. And what else is it about? Sharing dark, traumatizing secrets. But what if your BFF is too shy to share those secrets? That's why truly good friends contact Background Checks for Friends. Nothing says, I care about you, like going the extra mile to find out her father served time for embezzlement. And nothing builds trust like verifying whether she really graduated cum laude at an expensive private college. And when she finds out that you know as much about what she did at home last weekend as she does, well, she'll realize that yours is a friendship that knows no boundaries. And now when you sign up with the promo code reread, one word, you can try out their premium product medical checkups for friends. That's right. After a quick shot with a tranquilizer dart, they'll transport her to their medical center for a full gamut of x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs, and a colonoscopy. When she wakes up in her kitchen eight hours later, you'll have a solid medical opinion on the expiration date of your friendship. And thank you, Background Checks for Friends, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hello, hello. So, on the last chapter, we got a lot of comments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yep. I think they're going to be flowing like this for the next seven chapters or so. Yeah. Until we get through what the the play, yep. and then maybe they'll settle down until we get to the end. <laughs> we have a lot of comments, and we should say too, people probably noticed that the, the title of this one is called Part One because yeah, we we Jonas spawns a lot of things, and we got a number of people coming back with lots of questions. So we got a lot of comments and a lot of stuff to say about this chapter. So we split it into two. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what your patience is on, <laughs> on waiting for the chapter episode to begin, but you know, you can look on the show notes and see where the, the comments in and you can break them up however you want, but we have a lot of comments and it's going to take a, a long time. I, I go through all these comments. I list them and I've kind of got good at judging how long it's going to be with uh, the page count. And I would say we're looking at an hour. That's my expectation on this. We'll see. So, I think last time we told people, we said something like, oh, this is going to be a long one. And then it ended up being one of the shortest ones. We did. So, yeah. so hopefully we're better at yeah, you uh, can, anticipating. Well, you can always edit this out if it turns out it's different. <laughs> True. Fair enough. So, all right. Well, let's begin. So uh, right at the beginning on the chapter title, uh, The Fool's Fire, Robert Soraki thinks Fool's Fire sounds like a Willow the Wisp Association. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally see it. Well, you think, but I don't know. Will of the Whips lights are supposed to lead travelers off the path. Uh, the lights from the whips aren't really leading them anywhere. There's not a whole lot of places they can go. Yeah, they're not mischievous in that sense. They're just yeah. straight they, up torture. <laughs> yeah, they're mischievous in an entirely different way. 
Um, remember that Jonas talks to a woman who says that she's the seventh mother, but she said her mother was also the seventh mother. Mm-hmm. So uh, all bets are off for how many generations they've been in the antechamber. And mm-hmm. Michael Andre, how I took it, yeah. So Michael Andre Drisi. He sees some meaning into that. He says, seventh generation sounds biblical. A curse lasting seven generations for the sins of the father seems like some sort of a limit. That the prisoners have endured more than that seems significant. Perhaps that such cannot be justice. Yeah, um, that's good. It's roughly uh, from the sins of the father verses in the Pentateuch of the Bible, Exodus 25 and Exodus 37 and Numbers 14, 18, and Deuteronomy 5, 9. All of them say, in one way or another, that God will punish the sins of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations, uh, which uh, by some readings, I guess, could be uh, a total of seven. And uh, these people have definitely been punished for the sins of their fathers and mothers. The number seven in the Bible is associated with divine completion. So if these people have been punished beyond three and four generations, twice as many, their judgment has been long completed. Yeah, I agree. That makes sense. And I've never been much for these sort of numerology things or I mean, that's not actual numerology, but I mean, like, like, right to, to wonder if it connects that way but yeah i mean i I can this is one time when it does seem like the kind of very self-aware thing wolf would have done yeah i think it rings i could see so i i i buy it yeah and i i think it's i think in this case pretty clear anyway that this is way beyond any sense of proportionate justice (laughs) at all i mean (laughs) to the point that it's not even about somebody overreaching it's just completely having forgotten that they even did this so right yeah yeah anyway on facebook uh ori uh, kaworski says another incredible episode about the chapter that begins one of my favorite sequences in the book of the new sun bringing in one of my favorite characters to the fore in all his broken glory and let's see, Ori spells favorite with an O-U. And to an American reader <laughs> like myself, the natural impulse is to say, what a charming accent you have, Ori. <laughs> and he says, I think if we knew more about him and what ultimately happened to him, we'd understand so much more about Earth. Well, yep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Totally true. And if we understood more about Earth, we'd understand Jonas, too. Mm. And that would be interesting. He has some theories about uh, Jonas's breakdown in the antechamber, though. He says, I wonder whether Jonas's breakdown is because he at last realizes what planet he's on. As Severian later records Jonas saying, he now knows that he's on Earth. He's having his Charlton Heston on the beach moment. Which just just in the off chance, nobody knows what that is, <laughs> but just Planet of the Apes when he sees right. the Statue of Liberty and he realizes that he's actually on Earth in the future. And yeah. Like, damn, I mean, that, dirty apes. Yeah. We kind of touch on that, but it doesn't it, it's weird to try and figure out how that fits and how it's true. Yeah. Right? And I I like the idea because it would make sense. 
if it's there. It's just, and we can, we'll say more about this because it, it's an excellent, excellent candidate for what he's going through. But my issue is that it seems like he already knows that. Yeah. Knows a lot about where it is. So that's, that's more the issue. Yeah. But what he seems aware of already. If you could figure out how to make that work though, I think that would tell us Mm -hmm. a lot about Jonas's breakdown about his division well, one more thing on this point, he says, uh, Jonas's breakdown happens when he arrives in the antechamber, which has the decor he was expecting to see when he returned home and his people who knew names like they had at home. At that moment, no matter what he told himself, the realization that home no longer existed might have tipped him over the edge. Once again, uh, maybe, but... He knows about countries and places that are now beneath the sea. Yeah, so I don't mm-hmm. know. But let's see. Anyway, he also says, I wonder whether Jonas has somehow gone through the last thousand years thinking he is on an extrasolar colony and that there was still a familiar Earth to one day get home to. Something that also leaked out at this reading is that this is the second time Jonas says or implies that humans have been changed by their environments, the minds of Saltus being the other. Covers by mates notwithstanding, I wonder to what degree we would recognize the denizens of Earth as human. I also think that they would probably look different. I think we, I suspect that the, when Severian says that Jonas looked ancient when he was sleeping. They look like people he saw in paintings, that that's what he said. He's seen paintings for, of people from, say, our time, and they just look different in some way. Yeah. And, and that gets weird, too, because then that's his biological face, which right. even we were talking <laughs> and we will talk about questions about. It's an ancient face. Is it an ancient face? Was it one of the been, how right? Long how long ago has it been since the ship crashed? Because he yes. specifically says that the biological parts come from someone who was on the ground when the ship crashed. Yeah, yeah. But the question is, how long ago was that? Yeah. Right. But yeah, so that's that's an excellent possibility. It just again, it would work so well. I just don't know if it's right because of the time situation. Yeah. Like it, it seems just weird that his biological parts could have been just fine for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. But I mean, again, we don't know what kind of magic technology <laughs> there is. And it it's also the thing of like, well, if you've been wandering around for a thousand years, how did you not? Literally all over the world. Yeah. Right. He says yeah. all of its seven continents. And so, I mean, yeah, I, I see what he's saying, though. It makes yeah. perfect sense. He does say something like that. I don't know. But uh, Nudis Magrudis. <laughs> Uh, speculation on this theory. He says, maybe with all the population shuffling between planets and the changes in appearance in humanity, that Jonas didn't recognize the person he stole parts from as the same kind of human he was familiar with. Mm -hmm. And that in speaking with the prisoners, he realizes they are related and feels more remorse than he would have if they were zoanthropes or man apes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Nudis has his own theory. I've always felt that Jonas is flipping out because coming into contact with Severian star energy somehow rejuvenates the biological components that the robot purloined. Now the balance has been offset and the parts are imbued with a spirit, eyes as a window to the soul, as it were. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're definitely going to talk about that a little bit more mm-hmm. um, yeah. in, in the chapter yeah, yeah. As, as a possibility. Yeah. Like what is going on? Are there two memories now that is, has one been asleep and is one waking up or did he just not realize that they were melded or did he, you know, what, what is going on what the heck? inside <laughs> his head with these two people? I mean, I think one thing we can say for sure is that this is a world where as Alton says, and as the El Zabo shows, if you have a part of something, you can have the whole identity. Right. So the suggestion that there are, two completely different personalities in Jonas seems entirely plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, who is the thing that one woke up and had been asleep? And yeah, that's what's harder to tell. Right. Yeah. Cause Don't he worry. seems we're, we're to gonna have... go through many possibilities. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, Michael Robinson says, then I dream about the Robinson true soul. I think that Jonas's meltdown is twofold. A, realizing the time scale, how long exactly he's been wandering aimlessly. B, intensely identifying with these humans around him, how they've changed with generations of captivity and realizing that he is in for a stay of similar duration without that sweet release of death. <laughs> uh, let see, Christopher Taylor. On Reddit thinks, you know, I keep thinking I should be taking notes while listening. (laughs) Well, I think the same thing (laughs) while I'm talking. (laughs) I do take notes. Beforehand, (laughs) I take notes while we're talking. I'm still confused. Yeah. He says, I think of things partway through, and then I've forgotten them by the time I reach the end. Problem is, I listen to the podcast while I'm at work, and it might be hard to explain while I'm sitting there with a notepad instead of, you know, working. (laughs) It looks like work. You're yeah. actually like yeah. busily writing something. I'm just writing down meetings for my next meeting. Who, <laughs> <laughs> who the heck is Jonas? I don't have an explanation for what's happening with Jonas, but bear with me while I spitball a couple things. I don't stand by any of them as they require wandering a fair way off the page, but they did get me wondering. Talking about the commercial trappings of the antechamber got me thinking, is it possible that Jonas is somehow being influenced by computer networks in the house absolute? We do get some indications over the course of the new sun that at least some electronic systems remain functional on Earth. Gurlo listens to radio communications in the Madachin Tower. Autark Severian is able to open doors using spoken commands. Book of the New Sun is perhaps too old to suggest that Jonas has been inadvertently plugged into the house absolute Wi-Fi network, but it could be somewhere along that line. Yeah. I mean, even at the end of Citadel, right? The the he talks about the voice in Valeria's thing, mm-hmm. recognizing him as the Autark and announcing right. him. Right. So as you say, there seems to be more going on than Jonas just wanting to get out of the antechamber. He doesn't calm down once they're out. He goes full tilt hurling himself into the nearest mirror. He almost acts like some sort of dormant subroutine has been activated somehow that insists he not just leave the room, but leave the planet. The problem is there's no clear where, when, if anywhere, when he thinks he's going. Could it be that degradation due to time or his construction is interfering with said subroutine? Um, I guess it's possible. It's since I don't know, maybe yeah. um, it's not my first guess, but maybe 
However, uh, on Reddit, uh, Adolf Hutler has the opposite theory. On first reading, I thought his illness might have been caused by the absence of some kind of electromagnetic, that is, radio or microwave signal in the underground chambers of the House Absolute. In other words, above ground, he may have functioned normally because of his connection to some communication network along the lines of a cell tower or satellite system. But, you know, ultimately, he likes Christopher's idea better. But then Christopher thought, hmm, maybe that works, too. (laughs) So I know how you feel. I actually like that idea, but I don't know both, both partly because of, yeah, when people mentioned that it was written in the 80s before we kind of had that sense of being always connected, always connected or wirelessly plugged in or, you know, even even Neuromancer type stuff wasn't exactly the same, like didn't have the same sense of, of, yeah, virtual or wireless connection as it were. Um, But the other thing too is just that it seems pretty clear from the way they tell the story that it's something about talking to the descendants of Kim Lee Sung that that's that's what, that's what spawns it. And there's something, some realization happens there and it's, it's less, yeah, some, something else. I like the idea though. I think that's really fascinating and interesting Mm -hmm. um, as a possibility, but I just, I don't think it works for the text. Yeah. Well, uh, both Mike Farrar. And Michael Andre Juisi favor the theory Uh, Michael spelled out this theory in his first bonus episode with us over a year and a half ago. The theory that Kim Lee Sung was Jonas's shipmate, his navigator, on his crash spaceship. And Mike Farrar says, Kim Lee Sung lived out the rest of his life and died in the antechamber. A horrible fate. Jonas, as an advanced chem, robot, whatever, might survive hundreds of years in the purgatory of the antechamber, and his programming might prevent him from sabotaging himself or powering down. That could be enough to make him so desperate to escape. But on top of that, his bio bits are being juiced by Severian's vivifying power, and the last thing he saw before being thrown into hell on earth was Jolinta as the sun hit her features, and she looked like an angel. Bio-Jonas lusts for her. Robo-Jonas believes it's love. Regardless, he was so close to being reunited with her before being thrown into the antechamber. That's got to be pretty maddening. And Mantis agrees and reiterates. There's the human scale of the generational prison, which the Robo Joe might be aware of, <laughs> but would probably be shocking to the awakened Bio Joe. Shocking for the general human reasons, in addition to plausible personal reasons that, for example, he was thinking of going home to friends and family who he had before the ship landed on him. He's been Rip Van Winkled. And he just saw Jolenta, who is now that much more precious to him for his having lost all friends and family. He has probably run the calculus. The antechamber is only hermetically sealed for those who have no outside advocate, family, and cases like Lomare, whereas temporary prisoners presumably come and go, reducing the incest factor. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about that one. But... I don't know. You know, incest seems practically unavoidable in this story. But anyway, uh, Michael goes on. 
Running through the shortlist of their outside contacts, Jonas would reasonably figure he and Severian are doomed, and Jolenta is only going to be in the area for a couple days. Well, look, everything Mantis and Mike Farrar say is plausible. Whoever disagrees with them is plausible. But there is one thing that I think should be pointed out. If the claw is resurrecting Jonas's bio parts, then it is operating without Severian knowing it. He doesn't see it glowing the way it does when he's actively healing Jonas later or resurrecting the Ulan, all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the breakdown happens before he pulls out the, the claw, the claw. To right. run it along his body and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he specifically considers it inactive. So if Jonas's bio parts are waking up, th- then it's happening due to the shock of what he's learned, I think. And as we're going to discuss in this chapter, and as others have implied in these comments, I, I don't see the long period of time since his crash should be a shock still. Unless the bio parts go all the way back to a time before Korea sunk into the sea, which I guess is still possible, mm-hmm. really. But one thing Mike said that really stood out, though, was the part about Jonas mistaking lust for love and, mm-hmm. and that his bio and robot parts were, were kind of confused about this. That's an interesting angle that I don't think I'd really heard much of before. Yeah, that's and true. I like that that he could this doesn't necessarily explain his breakdown directly but i do like that it might give some kind of explanation for why jonas is so obsessed with jolenta in particular i mean a lot of people will say oh well she's cyborg like he is because she's part, mm-hmm. you know part whatever part of that and that could be true i mean there's there's some there's a symmetry to that that's nice but i, I don't i don't it just doesn't seem like it's enough, but I like the idea that Jolenta is made to be super, super, super attractive to, you know, males in general. And so the fact that he's got this bio thing that is sort of maybe <laughs> unconsciously reacting to it. And then Robo Jonas has to say, Oh, well, part of me is incredibly attracted to this person. It must be love. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I just like that idea. It's like thinking about like, how, how would data know if he fell in love with someone, if he was, you know, maybe he would just have all these signals, but then, and get drawn to them and misinterpret them. And, you know, I think that's kind of cool. I don't know. I don't know if that's really what's going on, but it does seem like a little bit more of an interesting explanation for why he falls for Joe, for Jolenta rather than just because she's the first cyborg he sees. Yeah. Well, in a way it kind of undercuts though, my idea of Jonas, I, we, back when we were talking about whether Talos is sentient, really mm-hmm. sentient or self-aware, uh, I said, well, no, I believe that Jonas is self-aware because he falls in love because he can love. Mm-hmm. And some, you know, Wolf is a, you'd be surprised with all of the head chopping and sexy 007 scenes and whatever. Mm-hmm. Gene Wolf was a really kind of romantic guy, as you can pick up in a lot of his scenes. He's the idea of love as being a, a motivating factor in, in, particularly in young men. Mm-hmm. I'd hate to bring that down to, well, you know, it's just lust. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be you know, like, like it's just for Jonas, right? Just because he's specifically a robot who maybe misinterprets some of these things, yeah. you know, the, I think the idea would be that it's because he's part robot that that's how he misinterprets or misunderstands what love mm-hmm. is. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's just, it, it's kind of interesting, but it would mean then that Jonas's love for Jolenta might not be 
real love. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know that he'd be saying that that's mm. what all love is, really. Yeah. In fact, I'm pretty sure that Wolf himself wouldn't say that. But yeah, I don't know. I like it. I like it. It's definitely something I'm going to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, keep it in our eye as we go through. Yeah. But yeah, because we have three chapters to mull over all these questions until mm-hmm. Jonas leaves us for good or for a long time. So let's keep it all, you know, in in view and see what works. Um, let's see. Uh, Brandon Melvin on Facebook sees an Aldous Budris. Am I pronouncing that name right? Should That's I how up? I always have. But yeah, um, so- and I, I have heard people who seem like they should know say it differently. But most people I've heard say Budris. Yeah, that's his name in my head. Um, anyway, he sees an old, uh, oldest Budris uh, connection. He says, I believe it's somewhat well known among Wolfheads that Gene's friend, Algis Jonas Budris, penned a novel in the late 50s called Who? about an injured American scientist who suffers an identity crisis after being repaired with machine parts and shipped back home by the Soviets. American authorities are unable to confirm the identity of his new mechanized body and weighed down by falsifiable suspicions of espionage. He is forced to give up his life's work and retire into obscurity. I've always felt there is something tender and genuine in Jonas's attraction toward Jalenta. Me too. And that he was not merely lusting after some obscene feat of bathocult or Calygipian engineering. Uh, Calygipian means beautiful buttocks. Uh, <laughs> Bathocopian, I, I think, means uh, beautiful breasts. These are very wolfy yeah, type yeah. terms. So this is His affections good. are seemingly rooted in shared trauma. He recognizes in Jalenta a kindred spirit, one whose augmentations, like his repairs, have mutilated a sense of body and self that can never wholly be repaired, at least not on Earth. We see how Jonas's meat hand is compared to a clunky hook-like prosthetic and how he lifts it up like a man might lift up a bit of filth to cast it away. The sense of mutilation is something both characters share with Budris's scientist, who, whose outwardly mechanical appearance prevents him from reclaiming his true identity and resuming his previous life. Yeah. Oh, this is really good. Uh, although we'll note that Jolinta does not consider herself traumatized. <laughs> she doesn't want to be any other way. The witches say that if they healed her, she wouldn't thank them for it. And that might well be the reason, uh, however you think the claw works, it might be the reason that it doesn't work on her. Anyway, uh, Brandon goes on. Yet only in Jonas's case does this identity crisis seem to be compounded by an unthinkably long lifespan. I ask myself what Jonas must feel after hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of years wandering a primitive far future earth, wearing someone else's face and play acting as a human being. As he later tells Severian when speaking about humanity, for years before I met you, I had become one of you. He does seem to know what he really is, but how authentic did those memories feel to him after the passage of so much time? Had his real identity come to feel more like a progressively forgotten dream, slowly receding from the day-to-day thoughts of his conscious mind? I feel like events inside the antechamber, particularly the name 
Kim Lee Sung, which seems intimately connected to his past, trigger a realization in Jonas of just how much time he has spent wasting away on this planet since his crash, living a life that is not authentically his. The jarring reminder of this half-buried truth is what leads to his feelings of waking up or going sane. If Butchers' physicist turned farmer had been longer lived, I could imagine him encountering a distant descendant of a former co-worker and being similarly upset by the unpleasant reminder that he wasted unknown millennia toiling in obscurity because he never managed to figure out how to reclaim his authentic self. So, Craig, there are so many things, so many things I like about yeah. this. Yeah, it's a well thought out way to connect a lot of dots there. You know, particularly the the, the name, that's really good. Aldris Jonas Budris, that's really good. Also, and which I think uh, actually Michael uh, Andre Dreesi did bring up on the Earth list at some point, but I don't... I don't see right away whether uh, the novel Who has ever been brought up. And that is a really good one because you have you have a scientist who suffers a uh, an accident and is mm. repaired with machine parts, and then he becomes a farmer. Yeah. And a ton of the novel, too, is actually about the Americans not trusting that he's really who he is because he, he has a metal thing around his head and they can't. They can't see his face, and so they're constantly afraid that they just have an impersonator who's really a spy. And so that's sort of the real tension of the novel is who is he? What's his identity? Even to the point of like, even if he believes that's who he is, is that really who he is? They just they just can't tell. There's no way to determine his identity. But what if Wolf took that character mm -hmm. and moved him backwards the other way? What if say you have a farmer out there and the ship lands on him and now he's repaired with metal yeah. parts and he becomes, I don't know, a scientist in yeah, a way because it, he's become, he becomes half robot. It definitely fits that who is, is that, I mean, with the name Jonas and the way that he's described who there. Yeah. I think I, I definitely think that has to be part of it. <laughs> I mean, it does. It, it's hard for me not to think of that connection. Yeah, it's hard to Jonas not anymore. see that when you see yeah. those bits of yeah. connection. Yeah. Of course, we know when Wolf does one of those things that is an illusion. It, it's never quite explanatory because he then takes it into. Yeah, he twists. You never know where twisting. he's going to go right. with it. It doesn't. Yeah. You can't really prove anything right. with it. You can't say, "Well, this is where he's going with it," because you don't know what Wolf is going to do with it once he yeah. gets his hands on it. But I think after after that, yeah, I'm. Pretty much convinced that big part of Jonas's inspiration was Budrison. Uh, back to Christopher Taylor. Uh, since chapter six of Claw, we've speculated that Jonas could be working as a spy for the Megatherians. And Christopher says, could it be the opposite? Could Jonas be somehow on the run from them? He may have been wandering around Earth for any amount of time, but there's no reason to assume he spent all that time in the Commonwealth. Yeah, no, indeed. Like we said, uh, he mentions all seven continents. That's right. He's been everywhere. And right before he leaves, too, he talks about wandering the world looking for technology. So he's been definitely all yeah. over. He hasn't just been hanging out in one spot riding his Mary Kip in Nessus. And, you know, um, it does make it problematic uh, for him to have been a spy for the Megatherians uh, since, you know, he's 
Hero Grammati uh, technology or Hero Grammat technology. Then again, you know, maybe his human side worked for the Megatherians, or maybe he worked for them in order to find information to find the heroes. But he doesn't seem to know a lot about the Megatherians' local minions. So, uh, never mind. I'm stepping all over Christopher's theory. <laughs> he says if he had returned to his original home in the Xanthodermic lands, he may have experienced Megatherian rule before escaping to the one part of the planet beyond their direct control. That could explain his apparent familiarity with them without contradicting his apparent humanism. Could his panic in the antechamber be due to something giving him the idea that the Megatherian agents were closing in on him? Oh, hmm. yeah, I suppose. I don't know. Maybe that would be a pretty desperate plan for getting yourself stuck in the antechamber just to assassinate a guy. <laughs> yeah, that's one that I got to admit feels more like the speculation stacked on top of speculation just because the the idea that he might be a spy although like i said who if he's coming from who then that's one of the big questions of who and so maybe there's evidence in there if you want to think that jonas is some kind of spy but um but otherwise it it just doesn't really seem to play a part in jonas's story yeah because he is ultimately the whole reason why he's wandering uh, we don't think we mentioned the wandering jew reference by the way we haven't yet no uh, although, I mean, it fits, right? I, I think it's been brought it, up. A lot time. of, I know it's been brought up like on Earth and Earthless and Reddit and um, is, and, and Mantis might even have it in Lexicon Earthless. I can't exactly remember, but um, it certainly comes up. I, I got to admit, that's one I don't particularly buy just because Jonas's story doesn't really fit with the wandering Jews yeah. story. Well, I, I don't know what to do with wandering it. Wandering like, side. He, he, he does wander and he wanders for a long time. But I, I don't know where to go with it after that. Yeah, because there's no sense that Jonas has sort of made some horrible mistake in judgment. Or but it is a good, once again, thing, it's a good but... connection to who in that, was he a spy? Is he a spy? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so let's see. And then going all the way back to the Flower of Dissolution chapter in uh, Shadow, Christopher says, finally, you mentioned someone referring to Dorcas putting a hyacinth in her hair in the Botanic Gardens. And that got me trying to remember whether anything was said in your episode for that chapter about her plucking a hyacinth, considering that the book opens with Severian almost being drowned under ninophars. I know ninophars mm -hmm. are supposed to be, you know, like a water lily, but Severian's description of them is actually sounds more like a water hyacinth. Water lilies are rooted in the sediment and extend stems to the surface. Water hyacinths float and trail a network of fibrous roots. It does seem a little suggestive that Dorcas would adorn herself with something that represented a threat to Severian's existence. Wow. Yeah, good point. I had never, that's cool. I had just always assumed that they were quite different and I don't know flowers very well, so I... <laughs> didn't uh, but that's really kind of interesting yeah i don't think we associated uh hyacinths to the ninophar we did associate ninophars with the lotus mm -hmm. and yep. both the lotus and the hyacinth are associated with death and resurrection but i like the idea that hyacinths and the ninophars from the beginning can actually be confused possibly in certain yeah. ways, especially if it's i mean the whole big thing about the reeds and everything with severian getting stuck under the water 
is so important that if it's hyacinths that do that too. Yeah. Well, I was thinking that mm. I think the hyacinths I always imagine as being white, whereas we know the nenophars are, you know, dark mm-hmm. purple or dark purple. blue. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think the connection is, is really there. I don't know, you know, uh, Severian, Mr. You know, glass half empty associates the Nenophars more with death <laughs> than resurrection. Whereas I think in Dorgas's case, it leans more to resurrection than death. But I mean, I think Christopher's association definitely works. I think, yeah, we should have mentioned that. That's I'm that makes me want to go back and look again and rethink about why these flowers. So, <laughs> yeah, and this one thing too. I just I'm really bad with. Any sort of plant description, like I, for whatever reason, my brain just can't remember stuff. Like Amber still makes fun of me for not remembering what flowers are. She's like, go grab lilies (laughs) would be more better than something else. I'm like, I don't even, I know what a tulip is and a rose. Like those are the two I can remember (laughs) beyond that. I, I even forget what she plants outside. I'm horrible. So, so, but I like this, that there might be some way to, even though they're distinct, that they have certain properties that might let them. They have, yeah, they have a they, lot more. Right, and, they have, they, well, they have an associated property right and there. And symbolically for those things to be mixed in this book and and to be a little ambiguous and hard to tell apart, that's, that yeah. that mixes up all kinds of images of Dorcas and the way Severian talks about the Nenophars, which I like a lot. So, yeah, that's got me thinking. Let's see, uh, Stephen Frug. And I can do the Frug has finally got all the way to chapter four of Claw. Craig, if we don't put our chapters out faster, Stephen is going to catch up. <laughs> hey, we did we did extend one week. We had a <laughs> Palmer's thing. That's true. We've given him every chance. So let's see. On chapter one of Claw, he says, first point, Craig and James discuss the poetry in Claw, both in the opening epigraph and the song that the soldiers sing. And they appropriately quote hands and feet. Wolf's essay from Castle of the Otter regarding the poetry in Book of the New Sun. But they don't quote Wolf's claim about the soldier's song that, quote, of all the material in the four volumes of the Book of the New Sun, I think this little song gave me the most trouble. It had to be something the soldiers could march a quick step to. It also had to be something these soldiers would would march to. Their slings projected pyrotechnic missiles, the shooting stars of their song. It also had to illuminate darkly Severian's past and future. So Stephen sets off breaking down this song and showing how it overlays Severian's life. And it's really exceptional, which is why, because a lot of you aren't on Facebook, and so you can't because now the uh, Rereading Wolf Facebook group is private. You can't just go and look up these posts. I put it on uh, on Reddit so that you all can see it. it. And there's a link to both the Facebook uh, post and the Reddit post in the show notes. And we're doing you a favor, Frug, because you used to be really active in your blog. It's- <laughs> you should just post these things up on your blog. Yeah, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> Making me do all this work. Uh, Stephen's post is not the first that's made me want to just, you know, read a listener comment and then put it in the f- feed separately from everything else. Uh, but frankly, I'm, you know, I'm behind editing, reading your interviews and my, you know, my reading of the land across. So that strikes me as a mistake to get started doing that. 
Uh, Stephen has also posted about our discussion in the comments of chapter two regarding the myth of the severed head surviving some time on its own. Stephen quotes from the epigraphs of the short story collection by Robert Owen Butler called Severance. The epigraphs are Dr. Dassey Dang, 1883, after careful study and due deliberation, it is my opinion the head remains conscious for one minute and a half after decapitation. And then another, Dr. Emily Reasoner, a source book of speech, 1975, in a heightened state of emotion, we speak at a rate of 160 words per minute. And then uh, Robert Owen Butler writes each chapter of his book, Severance, as 124 words, a minute and a half words at high emotion from the point of view of a beheaded from the point of view of beheaded people, Medusa, the dragon slain by St. George, the Lady of the Lake, Cicero, John the Baptist, Thomas More, uh, Mary Queen of Scots, Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, Lavasseur, Rosebier, Yukio Mishima, and others. He also includes himself last, although he is at this point 11 years late for his decapitation. I can't quite recommend this book. It's a great idea, but I don't think he sustains it. Some of them are good, though. A good book for flipping through, certainly. Um, let's see. He also mentions a history book, Severed, A History of Heads, Lost and Heads Found by Francis Larson. But if one <laughs> recommends multiple books about severed heads, then people start looking at you funny. <laughs> it, too, was better as an idea than as an execution. Ha, 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 ha. And then he gets to chapter four, uh, a separate post, and he discusses our discussion of how Severin records the Western horizon had already climbed more than halfway up the sky, which is great. And we saw this as a remarkable style of world building, but Stephen corrects us that it is no one-off. And then he begins to list all the places that Severian does it and the many places he fails to. Again, awesome. There's a link to it in the Facebook and Reddit, where I have moved it there as well. Look in the show notes. And then Stephen upbraids us for failing to note Thecla's reference to hunting leopards. He says, what a cool world-building detail. In that world, there are leopards that can be kept for hunting the way dogs are for us. The quote is, Severian says, much talk about bratchets, hawks, and hunting leopards. And you know, Craig, this is actually a vile correction. I think when we were discussing it, I might have even thought they were hunting for leopards rather than using hunting leopards. Mm. Yeah, that's a big miss. Yeah, uh, particularly since David Stockhoff pointed out that this is a real thing. Uh, um, hunting leopards, I looked this up, weren't actually leopards. They were cheetahs and caracals. And in the 19th century, wealthy Asian muckety-mucks would keep semi-tame cheetahs the way people keep hunting dogs. Cheetahs and the smaller caracals are quite tameable. The singer Josephine Baker uh, famously kept a pet cheetah, and she would lead it along on a leash. Big miss. Thanks, Stephen. I guess it's really not that wild. I mean, or at least, I don't know. Everybody knows about Tiger King now, but, um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah but you it's... wouldn't want to be going out in the jungle, putting up with a, with a tiger yeah. on a, on a leash. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, even if you got a couple dogs and they turn on you I mean, granted, <laughs> they don't have claws, but 
I mean, hunting but, dogs are But, but are, they're not really likely to turn on you in the way that a, a tiger will always eventually turn on you, right? I would. That's what I would think, but yeah. yeah. I'll never turn your but back But I guess, too, that's all we're, that's, that's the appeal, right? Like, that's why yeah. it's fun to have it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, well, I'll have to ask the guy. I don't know, yeah. but I do remember him being dragged away by a tiger at one point. Right. <laughs> uh, Stephen also loved the Children of Woolpit story that we talked about in the comments chapter of chapter four, uh, almost as much as we did. He notes that one of John Crowley's short stories, The Green Child, in his Novelties and Souvenirs collection, retells that story. And Stephen didn't realize it was historical. Quote, he talks as if it's a real tell, but I took it as standard Borgian faux scholarly narration. He also recommends in that collection, the novella, The Great Work of Time. Also, he reminds us that the children of Wolpert were also the basis for the only novel by Herbert Reed, also called uh, The Green Child of 1938. He says he hasn't read it, but it looks kind of interesting. And of course it does. Then let's see, Craig, on Facebook, David Dines. One time. Got to chapter four of Shadow of the Torture, and he has some thoughts on the things we missed in that discussion. He posted this on the original episode in the Facebook post, which is perfectly fine. I Even two years later, the thread still works. It's also okay to create a new post for old comments. It's all perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he says, firstly, it's essentially been forever since I read anything in the series farther than the opening chapters of Claw. For that reason, I'm sparingly listening to the podcast to avoid spoilers. <laughs> Good luck on that, David. Sorry. <laughs> that all being said, I have some questions about a time of burrowing. Uh, let me reread that passage. I have no way of knowing how old those tunnels are, I suspect, though I can hardly say why, that they antedate the citadel above them, ancient though it is. It comes to us. So I guess this means that the citadel was built because the tunnels were there, but that becomes an interesting issue of of how the, the timelines work on this. I, I might want to talk about that while we talk about this as well. He says, it comes to us from the very end of the age when the urge to flight, the outward urge that sought new sons, not ours, remained, though the means to achieve that flight were sinking like dying fires. Remote as that time is, from which hardly one name is recalled, we still remember it. Before it, there must have been another time, a time of burrowing, of the creation of dark galleries that is now utterly forgotten. So, David Dines continues, could the time of burrowing be in reference to a time when man had to survive an ice age by burrowing underground? There was a point in this episode right after this section was discussed when Craig said he had something interesting to say about all the references to bears in the chapter. And it was at that point that I thought I could anticipate what would be said. Bears hibernate in the winter, just like man needed to be in these underground tunnels and galleries during an ice age. Plus, the pair of bear constellations point toward the time orienting the North Star. 
though that is bringing Hamlet's Mill into things when I'm not yet certain it belongs. David, it is always appropriate to bring in <laughs> Hamlet's Mill connections in this house. Welcome, friend. Anyway, uh, Craig, what you actually talked about was Michael Andre Drusi's article in Olton's library entitled Lions, Tigers, and Bears of the New Sun. So could the tunneling have been a time of worldwide ice age? Uh, well, maybe. Uh, maybe you'd like that interpretation better, Craig, because it removes from the tunnels the impetus to devise yeah. a technology for moving through yeah. time. Although I'm warming to the idea. Just because every time time travel happens, there's the paths. But yeah, they, yeah. But um, but yeah, I don't. I just don't know. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting possibility. Um, yeah. I like the idea too that it would mean that all these layers of civilization have kind of happened, in, moving in and out of ice ages. Which, I guess, if we're talking about that much time, they would have had to. Um, but well, we do know that. They, otherwise, that they I don't do, know. The guild does predate ice the last ice age right yeah because they mentioned yeah. that during his elevation that's oh that's right that's true but yeah i don't know uh i just don't know i mean that it's another one that seems like you would just need to find more stuff specific to the text yeah that would make it work well um i mean i am convinced that they are used for time travel but at, it's a different times mm -hmm. maybe times in the same place or maybe different places i don't know yeah like if when he's on the cliff if he had if there was a time when he pointed out and here was the recent ice age <laughs> or something and right know, right, just, right just to actually bring it up as a little more of a real possibility in the yeah case. like that uh ralph ellison uh star trek episode you know go to all the different times and stuff yeah yeah well uh, Incidentally, I don't remember whether we ever talked about the fact that the tunnels definitely uh, predate the Citadel, which implies that the Citadel and the spaceport could have been built there because the tunnels were there. I think this is going to matter when we get to Syriaca's story in Sword of Lictor, and I'll put a pin in that one. Also, David Dines reveals that he's one of those guys who makes extensive notes in his book and draws maps in it. So I anticipate a lot of good stuff coming our way from him. <laughs> uh, people I know who do that most prolifically, they, yeah, they do it in, in their Bibles. But C.S. Lewis said he did it all the time in his books, and he couldn't understand why others didn't do it as well. He felt like he was getting the most out of the book that way, that it was, you know, it was not just a book that would would go on a shelf, but it was an awesome toy. And I wonder uh, what became of his books with his notes in them. But yeah, he, I write all over mine. So uh, just, I think I mentioned them there, but grad school killed it for me. It's like, <laughs> if I don't write something here, I'm going to write it on some notes and I'm going to forget it and I'll <laughs> need it later. And yeah. And then you tear the pages out of the book. You are a librarian's that nightmare. That I have not done. But yeah, if I run a pristine one, I have to buy a second copy because otherwise, yeah, I write stuff all the time let's see on reddit neil smith neil at the cross. has a question about the atrium of time and the uh, potential time travel tunnels he says listeners comments in chapter 15 brought valeria up again which reminds me of a question i have what path did Severian take out of the atrium of time after meeting Valeria, back to the Manichin. Yep, this bugs me too. You're here. <laughs> yeah, well, as Neil points out, Severian didn't retrace his 
path through the tunnels. He initially tries to find the atrium by flyer without success. In the end, he goes down to the tunnels, follows his own single set of footprints to Valeria. Anyway, um, Neil says, food for thought. Overall, it's clear that there is a great deal more going on with Valeria that he simply chooses to omit. Uh, Mantis confirms, and I agree, that Severian was led to the front door of the Atrium of Time in his own time. Uh, Mantis offers a theory that there is no time travel. Instead, there's a time insulation where Valeria's group lives. And for them, the world outside, presumably the entire age of the Autark, has passed by in a number of their own generations. Let's say seven generations. <laughs> just like the antechamber. <laughs> uh, Mantis says, so external time stops when an outsider visits, and though Severian chats with Valeria for over an hour, perhaps when he emerges from the tower, only a few seconds have elapsed there since he entered, which is to say Valeria is the girl in the glass coffin. Well, that sort of works with Wizard Knight as well. I have my own theory, and it's not that different from Michael's, but the thing is... If her time is moving slower than everybody else's, then in order for Severian to get there, he's got to go back in time, right? It seems like that's how the logic would Because otherwise, yeah. every time we go there, you would have a different generation of people. Yeah. It would be, we'd be going very fast and she'd be going very, very slow. I don't, I don't know. I'd have to keep, I'd have to put, the, get this and write it down in the, in the pages yeah, it of gets my book. really weird. Yep. Time travel always does. That's why it bugs me that one of my favorite books is a time travel book. <laughs> so otherwise I hate time travel books. But I suspect that my theory is a little more internally consistent. The time travels only take you backward to specific times that are determined by the sundial equipment. The present is an anchor, or, or more appropriately, the present is a ship, and the many destinations of the past are anchors, and they're always moving further and further into the past. So the path and doorway from Valeria's chamber to the citadel takes you to the present where the machines are constantly maintaining the connection to the past. What would have happened if Severian had re-entered the well and that he came out of? I, I mean, I don't know. But the tunnels are intended for one-way travel to let Severian out in his own time because it was the only time that he could have come from. And he walks away from the doorway and he doesn't look back or if he did, yeah, he wouldn't have seen the doorway. But if Valeria's room is in the past, or if it started in the past and it moves at a slower pace, it must be from a time very far in the past. Valeria knows things like witches and tower mm -hmm. as a kind of fable. Mm -hmm. And we know that the witch's tower goes back at least to the time of Typhon, but then we don't know if there were witches there at the time anyway. It's weird. And she knows about the whole Artark thing and the... the yeah, she has a no Artarks, and, and even though, so. yeah. Uh, Stephen and David are reading behind us. On Reddit, Isaac S. Though I'm not quite sure if poor Isaac would agree. Has some ideas from a chapter ahead of us, a novel ahead of us, Earth of the New Sun. And it brought up a subject that we've talked about before. He says just making my maiden way through the earth, and I came across the following. I had stabbed him as I had killed so many others without ever exchanging a word. 
it had been a rule among the torturers that one should not speak to a client nor understand anything a client chanced to say. He says, this struck me as odd, perhaps because the long discussions Severian and Thecla have in the Oubliette, which defies guild edicts, I realize, but also because I recall Gerlo giving Thecla quite a walking tour of the tower on her way to the revolutionary during her own excruciation. Combine that with Severian's frequent meat chats as Carnifex with his various clients on the eve preceding the executions, and I got the impression that the torture-client relationship often became more cooperative and subtly sympathetic than the quote above implies. Uh, well, I think that the limitation, Craig, only refers to journeymen and below, and only during torture of execution. But you know, there's an interesting conversation about it. Uh, check out the link mm -hmm. in the show notes. Also seems like one of those things that they say that that is immediately meant to be broken or that yeah. you know, for good drama, <laughs> it's you're the worst the kept rules. rule. So right. much for your motto, we obey. Yeah, exactly. Um, Neil Smith is puzzling over the puzzle of when Severian stops seeing himself as a follower of Vodalus. He says, listening to this chapter made me wonder further about when Severian stopped wanting to follow Vodalus. He notes that we brought this up in the feast chapter when Severian eats and is joined to Thecla, uh, when he left Vodalus's camp, and then in chapter 15 when Severian says, I had tried to throw away the steel twice while Jonas and I were riding north, but I had found I could not, as if Severian has completely changed his mind about Vodalus. And yet, Neil says, and yet, in the first chapter of Shadow, Severian says, many times since then, when I have stood upon a shaky platform in some market town square with Terminus Est at rest before me and a miserable vagrant kneeling at my feet, when I have heard in the hissing whispers the hate of the crowd and sensed what was far less welcome, the admiration of those who find an unclean joy in pains and death, not their own, I have recalled Vodalus at the graveside and raised my own blade, half pretending that when it fell, I would be striking for him. But, Neil says, if I'm following the plot correctly, his first execution is Agalus and then Merwenna and the unnamed wrestler with no one in between and when, then he meets Vodalus and gets sick at the thought of the banquet. And after that, he's trying to throw away Vodalus's secret message. And finally, the, exercising his trade on the way. Is Severian pretending to strike for Vodalus now, consistent with him trying to throw away the message? And if he means something later, it seems even less consistent. Unless he actually plied his trade between Piteous Gate and Saltus, this wouldn't appear to make sense. That, Neil is a very good point. It's really an inconsistency Jenga here. There have <laughs> not been many times that Severian has stood on the platform and considered himself executing on behalf of Vodalus. Only three yeah. tops. And it's weird to his relationship with Vodalus. Like he says he's going to throw it away, but he doesn't. And so uh, the way I took it was that it's, he hasn't necessarily turned against Vodalus completely. And even in the quote there, he says, you know, I half pretended. So, you know, yeah. and it was sort of a coping mechanism. I don't know. I mean, there's some wiggle room in there to, to make it not quite, you know, a full on continuity error or whatever. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, this one, I have a hard time 
really reading it into as a, a signal or, or, an, or even an error necessarily, just because I still feel like even all the way up until, and we haven't gotten to it yet, but when he delivers the message, he's always waffling about it, right? Like mm-hmm. he's always kind of this, kind of that. I want to leave him. I have, even though he says I had no intention of doing it, they're still going there and he doesn't throw it away. And so well, see at this point, you know, in chapter 15, he seems to suspect that what Volus had promised that the Alzaba would has kind of a hold on you. And yeah. the oath that he gives during the, during the time when he's on the Alzabo. Yeah. However, yeah. However, if we treat this as another memory error that of Severian talking about all the times, the many times that he stood on the platform and executed yeah. people in Volus's name, uh, then the puzzle can be resolved with ye old first Severian theory. Uh, my it's, brand, it's been a while. Is. We haven't yeah. had a good, a good first Severian solution. <laughs> I'm sure it hasn't been that long. But the idea is that the first Severian did not have the hostile reaction against Votilus that our Severian did. And it might even resolve the strange puzzle that Severian rebels against Votilus after the feast because he is viewing Votilus and the event from the perspective of an older first Severian. Of course, Severian rarely seems to display wisdom beyond his years, so that would be hard to defend. But anyway, the mystery deepens, Neil. I still, I may on that one come down on the side of the way he describes all these things. There's, there's lots of hedging involved. Mm-hmm. And plus he's kind of like, I half pretend this when I'm feeling weird about things and it's a way to just get me, get me in the mindset. But it's not <laughs> like he's saying, you know, when I stand up there, I am once again, reaffirming my loyalty to Votilus, right? Well, I mean, in the early chapter, it kind of does give that sense. Yeah, he's like, he's like, I, and and in that sense too, it does kind of fit where he's like, you know, even though I didn't follow Votilus in the end, giving me the coin and making me a soldier, that was a symbolic act that was putting me into something. And there's a way that, you know, remembering part of that, as he says, half pretending to do it is maybe saying, I remember the deeper meaning of what it meant to be part of something. And I had a duty and, you know, I was whatever. I mean, it it just seems like there's a lot of room in there to, yeah, to make it, make it okay. (laughs) Make it it not a problem. Okay. But but I see it. I definitely, I still see the, I definitely see the, yeah. The worry. Well, uh, see, Neil also likes our doctor who, reference to the statues Uh, like me you know he's not sure if this occurred in chapter 14 or sometime in chapter 15 episode he says it took him a while to realize that our reference to the weeping angels uh with the david Tennant doctor who at first he thought it we meant the melkor uh, episode in the 70s or 80s a tom baker doctor who the masters tardis his time travel ship was disguised as a statue instead of an old timey British police box. And Neil thinks that this fits. And I agree, which in that I, I think it fits well. Oh, and Tom Baker, by the way, is the best. <laughs> he is I think we really had a little one. argument about that, but no, it's, it's Tom Baker. Don't worry. Well, I mean, you know, I love several of the Doctor Whos uh, for their own ways. I love the fact yeah. that oh, yeah. uh, Hartwell is so paranoid and irascible <laughs> all the time. Yeah. And um, I, I kind of like uh, John Pertwee. I, I like his kind of super spy uh, mm-hmm. Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. I, but I, yeah, I mean, 
Tom Baker was my first and my favorite. I believed that Tom Baker was an alien. When I, was, <laughs> I was like, oh, when I learned that Doctor Who was not human, I was like, oh, yeah, totally. This guy's not human. <laughs> Look at those eyes. Look exactly. at those teeth. <laughs> exactly. He'd make a great Doctor Talos, by the way. Back in his prime, he would he would make a wonderful. He's too Doctor tall, Talos. too tall, much too Maybe tall true, for that. But, yeah, but oh, that would be good. You keep the crooks and charlatans and business babe. And it's time to thank our lovely new patrons since last episode. This time we have a few new journeymen, Stephen Johnson, Ted Custer, and Scott Mainwaring. Thank you guys so much for helping out, and I hope you enjoy the extra content up on Patreon.com. And we have two new master patrons this time. First, Colby Lorenz. And Hunter Norman. Oh, and Stephen Frug signed up too, but hey, you know what? We've given you so much free publicity already. You pretty much owe us at this point. Well, Craig, um, I guess before someone starts cracking that whip, we better <laughs> just move on and get into this chapter. It's long enough as it is. Yeah. yeah. Chapter 16, Jonas. So here we are. Late into the second week after Severian left the tower, it's the night after Severian and Jonas fled the Notchuls and resurrected the Ulan and briefly encountered Hathor and Buzek. They're locked up in the antechamber at the House Absolute. This is the aftermath after the exultants raided the antechamber and whipped the prisoners with their electric flails. But that's not going to be made clear in this chapter for a while. The exultants have left with the prisoners nursing their wounds as best as they can. So let's get started. Okay. So Severian says, I hungered then for light as a starving man for meat. And at last I risked the claw. Perhaps I should say that it risked me. It seemed I had no control of the hand that slid into my boot top and grasped it. Yeah. Is this subjective reality for Severian or is the claw actually compelling him to act? In a way, it definitely felt like it when he resurrected the Ulan, uh, Cornet mm. Minius. Yeah, and it's, at the very least, Severian says he doesn't feel like he's in control. Mm-hmm. Doesn't doesn't say that he feels that way. And we were just talking about when he was captured by the Praetorians, that he was talking about bringing up all these issues of freedom and uh, compulsion and coercion and all the ways that we act like we're in control, but there's actually something else controlling us. And here, this chapter starts off, I think rather interestingly, with the whole image of Severian not really being in control of his actions. And yeah. I, I got to admit, I wonder if this is more a signal for something that we're going to think about with Jonas rather than with Severian. Hmm. But yeah. right now, yeah, it's it's definitely Severian saying like the claw has some kind of power that is stronger than me, it seems like. Yeah. Well, as soon as Severian picks it up, it glows brightly with, quote, a rush of azure light. The, the blue light makes his other prisoners think the whips are coming back with the blue electric arcs, you know, or maybe something else. So Severian puts the claw away back into his boot and then he starts feeling around for Jonas. He finds him 
20 steps away from where they were when the attack came, 30 to 40 feet away. Yeah. So this is kind of cool, too, because this is the only time where it seems like the claw comes out and it causes fear. It causes mm-hmm. terror in people. And that's the only time I think we have that where the blue light is not comforting. Mm -hmm. And granted, yeah, it's because it reminds them of the other electric lights. But yeah, something about this moment feels very wrong. Things aren't working like they should. And Jonas is writhing. Uh, Since there's no talk of dead or dying, I suppose those electric whips are more catastrophic to cyborgs than normal people. He's lying there writhing, like I said, now... Severian carries him back to their nook. And this is the third time Jonas has been carried in this book. Mm -hmm. And this is where Severian discovers how light he actually is. So he lays Jonas down and covers them both with his fulgen cloak. So no one will see the light of the claw when he touches it to Jonas's forehead. And it works. Soon he's sitting up. Severian and Jonas still don't know what attacked them or where it came from. But Jonas is having flashbacks. Like he thinks they're on his ship and he's remembering some crisis. He says, we must get power to the compressors before the air goes bad. Right. So this moment is one that, I mean, I am totally on the lookout for anything that'll explain what the heck is going on with Jonas and his breaking out. <laughs> so it does on the one hand make sense that if somebody's just kind of coming out of unconscious consciousness, that they're, they're going to miss the context or maybe be dreaming or something like that. There's also the possibility that something just got resurrected and it's awake. And the first thing that he's thinking about is wherever he just last was. Right. I mean, like maybe who knows he had died in the ship crash or something like that, or that part of him or something. And he's coming back now. The only Mm. issue with that is that every other time the claw seems to bring someone back, it wipes their memory. Right. Exactly. Rather than, and it just feels like, it does feel like, some sort of memory is being resurrected. But honestly, it felt like that already to me in the last mm-hmm. chapter when he was having the conversation with mm-hmm. people. Yeah, no, I think he's definitely already had some kind of shock to his system, right? Right. Like he's already said, I have to get out of here. I'm Right, exactly. Escape, yeah. Right? So still, nonetheless, that just popped up as something that I was like, okay, I hadn't really noticed before that that line was immediately after the claw. So yeah, holding on to it. Just right, to right. Yeah, yeah, sure. So Zverian just calms him down by talking to him like a child. And there's something here potentially meaningful or not. He says, everything's all right, Jonas. I despise myself for it. But I was talking to him as if he were the youngest of apprentices, just as years before Master Malrubius had spoken to me. Mm-hmm. Now, I infamously believes Malrubius is Severian. And if that is true, it opens the possibility that in some connected or subjective way, Severian is Jonas. We've noticed the parallels between Severian and Hathor and between Hathor and Jonas. And by the transitive property of Gene Wolfe, that means (laughs) that there are parallels between Severian and Jonas. I, I don't know what to say other than that, but it it looks fishy to me. What can I say? Yeah. Oh, Not I definitely to anyone see the else. parallels. Yeah. No, I definitely see the parallels. Um, yeah, that's, we're getting back to our old thing of, is it metaphor or plot? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So the way I think this part's cool too, this little thing here is that, again, treating Jonas as a child is, and talking to him like he's a child is, again, kind of like 
how he has to treat Dorcas and how he has to treat mm-hmm. the Ulan that, you know, you have to suddenly just be very careful and very caretaker like, and um, yeah, it's still exactly how Severian has to act when someone else gets resurrected. too. But if the association as I'm drawing it is real, then it would suggest if you're going to follow that, then you would follow it to say that Jonas is in some way some future version of Severian. That if if you're going to follow it that way, and that's harder to do. I mean, it's yeah. really hard. But although I'm sitting here now thinking about like, is there any way that Severian's memory is because he's everyone reincarnated <laughs> at one point? Or, I don't know. That that just gets crazy complicated. But I feel right. like yeah. I've read somebody say that once before. I feel yeah. like somebody had a long thing that was about that. But yeah, as far as how to actually line those mechanics out in the plot, I have no idea. Yeah, it's like that uh, Mojo Nixon song, Elvis is everywhere. So <laughs> I'm sure that's precisely we what need we a would have version. had in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> so Jonas grabs Severian's wrist with his robot right hand and he says, I feel weight, which... I think would suggest, oh, look, I'm not on a ship. I've, I feel gravity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, but then louder, he says, it must be only the lights. And then he starts talking in a nasal monosyllabic language. And I think you're right, uh, Craig. I think it's Chinese or Korean. He says, I feel weight and it must only be the lights. And I don't really know what experience Jonas is reliving in that though. The weight absolutely makes sense if for various reasons, but I mean, especially if you're talking about a ship crash, like the closer Mm -hmm. you get to the atmosphere and to the draw of the planet, the more you're going to weigh, but the lights I'm not sure of. Yeah. Um, And the only thing I could think was that it's Jonas saying the part about, I feel weight and then it's, or it's robot Jonas saying the part about, I feel weight. And then what if it's bio person on the ground who's nearby when the ship crashes and says, Oh, it's only lights in the sky or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I've been trying to figure out all kinds of possibilities with this one. I feel like there's gotta be something about the two parts of Jonas fighting each other. Right. Um, and just trying to map out how that would work or where that would work. That's what I'm trying to do with this one. So, I'm, but I thought that would be really cool if this is Jonas saying things from two different perspectives at the same time. I mean, it fits like what he does with Sidero in Earth of the New Sun, right? Where you know you jump back and forth between Sidero and Severian's consciousness because they're merged when he wears them. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard to know if that's exactly what's going on. If Wolf had had something more specific than just the lights, saying I, you know, it must only be the lights, or I don't know. Yeah, um, you know, Michael, Andre, uh, Drusi, and I have a lot of diverging uh, ideas about Jonas's past and his, uh, you know, who he is and what it means. Uh, One thing is, well, he also believes that at this point, the claw has begun resurrecting Jonas's human parts. I I confess I'm a little doubtful of that, but at your little, uh, I can tell a little more uh, credulous of that point. But at least, I mean, I'm, I'm doubtful of a strong version of that argument. I do think it's, it's likely that some of his memories are perhaps being restored or, you know, I mean, Jonas has to sleep. He breathes. He probably eats his human parts are self evidently alive. Mm -hmm. I think his consciousness must be a mix of his robot and human consciousness. It's the only explanation I can think of for his attraction to the woman 
Jalenta, and mm. that attraction does not go away, nor is it lessened after this healing. But it could be that the claw is resurrecting some distressing memories as it heals his human parts and his robot parts. I, I don't know. And that's kind of the closest I've come to of what would make most sense mm-hmm. is something about him getting memories back or or having possible memories confirmed by right. seeing the people here that he might have just thought were, I don't know, problems or hallucinations. But But even then, everything that he says before when they have their conversation seems like he's totally aware that, oh, yeah, I know stuff about... Mm-hmm way past so why would this be so disturbing uh, well jonas him? i mean jonas is like so many uh characters that i, I think uh, although it's obviously an interpretive uh in most cases on my part is but he is someone who thinks he understands himself and does mm-hmm. in some level but he is like uh, in Plato's uh, Timaeus talks about these uh, souls before we're born, mm-hmm. we we're born and then we forget who we are. Mm-hmm. He's like that. And, but in some level he does know, but at another level, he's not fully uh, conscious. It's not at the front. It's, yeah. it's very much a, maybe perhaps a Freudian view of unconsciousness. But anyway, that's, uh, it, it does get, kind of hard to make arguments because there's not really a hard line as far as deception goes because mm-hmm. the the person is deceiving themselves as well. Yeah. And there is another way to think about this that maybe that confusion is intentional and that Wolf really maybe intentionally tried to mix up this line of saying exactly what does he remember and how mm-hmm. seriously does he take it? And right. if you do have a true sort of hybrid cyborg creature that almost makes sense that you have these two things that function as one but maybe aren't really an integrated identity and maybe what's going on here is he's becoming aware of how unintegrated he really is Mm, yeah and that or or something like that like it's more like he's really trying to like he's truly messed up. He truly yeah. is a split personality. Yeah, and he's he's once again one of those characters uh, that Wolf returns to again and again, who is forgotten who he is and just mm-hmm. has to find find himself again. Yeah, and it would almost be more terrifying in some ways to constantly have half of the answers right mm-hmm. there, but then in tab two halves that don't cohere. Right, that could be an even stranger kind of insanity. But isn't that the way Freud saw us? Right? Um, yeah, I'll I'll defer to somebody else. I, I mean, mean, I'm not Freudian, but yeah. my understanding of of the uh, ego and the, we have the, we have con- unconscious motivations and we have conscious motivations, and then uh, perhaps. Isn't it Hume who said that basically our minds are just justifications for the body? Mm-hmm. And Yep. Everything we think is within our control or our will or whatnot is really just kind of a rationalization we come up with after the right. fact for what we're doing anyway. Yep. Yeah. And what that is, is all kinds of unconscious drives and feelings of duty and feelings of desire. I mean, both the, the id and the superego stuff, right. all those things that affect you all the time that you're not ever really thinking about or making decisions about right yeah so yeah this could be 
that kind of situation where everything's just come unhinged and he's aware of how unhinged and how pulled in different directions he really is. Exactly. Anyway, Severian doesn't know what else to do. So he takes out the claw and he tries to heal him some more. But now the claw isn't active. It's just very dimly glowing like it was earlier. Mm. Once again, Severian, if he is controlling that claw, then he doesn't know how to consciously control it. And it seems like it's done what it was supposed to now, right? Yeah, like it, right. It was it was awake when it was going to do something to Jonas, and now it's, it's done that, something. My know. work is done. Exactly. So. Yeah, he eventually calms down, and they go to sleep, and so does the rest of the room. And when he wakes up, the lamps are on again. He says, quote, burning again, but it's it's not obvious to me that he means burning with fire, even when he refers to the lights in the tower. At least not always. Somehow Severian senses that it's still dark outside or just breaking dawn. Uh, Jonas is still asleep. Which it's kind of a cool, that's just a cool little aside because it is, he has that sense of where stars are in the sky. Yeah. 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 Particularly the, the ones that, yeah. I mean, even if it's, even if it's not specifically about his star that's out there, but just... Severian knowing where the sun is and where yeah. the star is, that's that's appropriate. That's freaky. Uh, Jonas is still asleep beside him, and Severian can see a long tear in his tunic where an electric whip hit him. There's a bad burn in his flesh. So again, quote, recalling the man-ape's severed hand, unquote, Severian uses the claw. This is the third reference to the man-ape's hand and reference to using the claw, but Severian never described healing the man-ape's arm. He'd have to have done that in front of Agia. If he did, I think he must have. To me, this is a signature example of this book and very frustrating one. (laughs) It's another one of those irritating moments where you're like, "Uh, should David Hartwell have just read closer when he's editing and just... (laughs) Is this a continuity error or is this intentional? Exactly. I just don't yeah. know. So Severian looks around to see that no one is watching and he traces the burn with the claw and it really shines bright now, brighter than when he used it on Jonas's head the first time. And it's still a black burn, but it's narrower and the flesh on either side is less inflamed. And then there's something interesting here. He says, To reach the lower end of the wound, I lifted the cloth a trifle. When I thrust in my hand, I heard a faint note. The gem had struck metal. Drawing back the cloth more, I saw that my friend's skin ended as abruptly as grass does where a large stone lies, giving way to shining silver. My first thought was that it was armor, but soon I saw that it was not. Rather, it was metal standing in the place of flesh, just as metal stood in the place of his right hand. How far it continued, I could not see, and I was afraid to touch his legs for fear of waking him. <laughs> so one thing I like about the description there is the the whole thing about where grass stops is also very mm-hmm. similar to what we saw with the path outside mm-hmm. of the Autark house, of outside the house absolute. And this whole thing about borders between something natural and artificial um, right. Yeah. It's kind of cool that he's using exactly the same image. Yeah. There. So Severian puts away the claw. He's learned something surprising and even confusing about his friend. He wants to be alone and think. 
So he walks away from Jonas to the center of the room, and we get a description of the room. Now, it seems stranger still, a ragged blot of a room, frayed with odd corners and crushed under its lowering ceiling. Which Uh, is a really cool and difficult to perfectly visualized yeah. <laughs> right it's like like the the whole thing about corners almost makes you think like he couldn't quite tell how many corners it had like it mm-hmm. seems like it's not just a big square room right it's odd Maybe corners they're not like they're a room yeah. corners you have in a big room there's right. something else right and then that it seemed crushed under its lowered ceiling which yes oh uh, yeah yeah, yeah I, we're I, good right think of like a damp like a, if you've ever we're in school and there was like a leak and the ceiling <laughs> yeah. gets all damp and gross and starts sagging. Yeah, right. Right. But all of this is kind of foreshadowing the fact that this is architecture that's been remodified and changed and then put a, uh, a drop ceiling over the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But we'll get and to that in a bit. Also, if this is just supposed to be an office and knowing how we'll felt about office things from four and other yes. places, this way, right. This would fit perfectly with just, mm-hmm. it's just an office, an office building. <laughs> so to occupy his mind, he decides to measure the dimensions of the room by walking it. So he won't wake anyone up. So he quietly walks and he gets only about 40 paces, 60 to 80 feet. And then he sees something that looks out of place here. A fine woman's scarf, quote, woven of some rich, smooth material, the color of a peach. There's no describing the scent of it, which was not that of any fruit or flower that grows on earth, but was very lovely. So one of the exalted women left her scarf behind and he starts to put in his saber tash when a little girl with, quote, a pale face and sparkling midnight eyes that seem too large for it unquote. He also says that her little head, though it seemed much too big for her shoulders below Which it. I think at this point, we're definitely getting a description of like, I don't know, malnourishment or being away from the sun. Or right. Yeah. Some perhaps he's very of, thin, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Or just, you know, little disease. kids have a larger head for their bodies, their heads, you know. Yeah. The other thing too, when he talks about the big eyes like that is it, no one Wolf's thing for Lamarck. It just kind of sounds like someone who's lived in the dark for a long time. So their eyes get bigger and bigger. Yeah. yeah. Just like how Tolkien describes uh, the orcs who were right. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. Their eyes got bigger and bigger. Well, anyway, the little girl who was watching him pick up the scarf, uh, even though he didn't know it, she says, it's bad luck, terrible luck. Don't you know, keeping things they've left behind, they come back for them later. It turns out they get annoyed if they drop something while they're whipping you (laughs) and then you keep it. Nice people. Yeah, aristocrats. Yeah. (laughs) And then the little girl asks, quote, why do you wear those black clothes? She says, burying people wear black clothes. Do you bury people? When the navigator was buried, there were black wagons and people in black clothes walking. Have you ever seen a burying like that? So, okay. It is unlikely that she has ever seen a burying. I suppose when someone dies, the Praetorians just come and carry out the body. So she's never seen a funeral and she's never seen the funeral attendees wear black. And Michael Andre Drusi argues that the navigator is Kim Lee Suang, mm-hmm. the most ancient antechamber ancestor of at least one of these families. Mm-hmm. 
And since Kim Lee Swang does seem intentionally associated with Jonas's ship, I would say, taken on the whole, that is a very compelling theory for me. Kim Lee Swang was the navigator. And the little girl has heard stories of this ancient ancestor who was just called the navigator. But it also suggests one of at least three things. When Kimberly Song died, people could leave the antechamber for short times. Uh, there weren't yet prisoners here. Uh, alternately, the story of Kimberly Song's burial is something people heard about from new prisoners, and it was described in detail, and it continues to be described that way to this day. Or no one saw the funeral or described it, but the details of other funeral customs worked their way into the tale. However, Craig, mm -hmm. listener Sierra Reynolds, who seems to never come out from her hidden lair without some <laughs> magical gem to show off, has posted a theory about Kim Lee Song. She says, Hey, Wolfgang, I've been ruminating over the antechamber adventures and Kim Lee Song. And something occurred to me. Is it possible that Jonas is actually referring to Kim L. Soon? Kim L. Soong, uh, S-U-N-G. He was the founder of North Korea and basically started the Korean War. He also wrote a poem from which the North Korean experimental satellite program, Kwang uh, Myong Song, gets its name. It means lodestar, something his followers called him. And that possibly is why the navigator is important, maybe. Uh, the government officials attribute the national ideology of Jush to him, which seems like a pretty solid foundation for the Asian's eventual way of life. He's still preserved and on display in his former palace turned mausoleum, the Kum Suzan Palace of the Sun, and he was declared eternal president of the Republic after he was already dead. Feels like a fairly possible illusion given Wolf's experiences with the Korean War. And its aftermath, it also makes sense that the name would be slightly muddled, either by Jonas being a little fuzzy when speaking to Severian about what he knows, or in the translation of the book to English by Wolf. So it seems she's suggesting that the fortunate cloud, lucky cloud, auspicious cloud, was a North Korean vessel, perhaps earliest ancestor was not someone present, but a reference to the reverence held by Kim Il-sung. And the story of the burial of the navigator was just an old story from the Fortunate Clouds pre-launch. Hmm. So, alternatively, to pull this back from all this literalness, uh, the history could be elusive to North Korea history. And for some reason, but I think uh, Sierra is actually going the more literal route. She says, the antechamber prisoners remember him as being the first prisoner from whom they can trace lineage to or from. It feels like it might be a reference to the way North Korea has rewritten its history around the great leader. Even the calendar year is based on Kim Il-sung's birth. It might make sense that Jonas is familiar with the name because the cult of personality was still going strong when he first set sail. And Kim Il-sung died like a decade after 
Book of the New Sun was released, so Wolf obviously wouldn't know how the dictatorship would carry on, let alone his death. But he probably had a decent feel for what could happen if that kind of power and propaganda was left unchecked long enough. The antechamber prisoners have only have limited info passed down through the generations of captivity with a few new prisoners and bits of info added every so often. So maybe the navigator or some type of great leader had a name that managed to stick and the people don't even know how long their ancestors have been in the antechamber. So eventually this name that lots of people know for some reason could just morph into the distant ancestor over the years. And she also says, I do think The Fortunate Cloud is an allusion to China. Song of the Auspicious Cloud was a Chinese anthem for a hot minute, plus the word for fortunate and cloud sound familiar. So the auspicious cloud motif, which is usually a stylized in the shape of the immortal immortality fungus, is really common in Chinese design. And I think maybe it's meant to reinforce how far into the future the story takes place. A lot of details have been lost or twisted. Craig? Yeah. So I like Sierra's theory. There's a lot lot here. I like, and we'll put a link to that because I know that's a lot to that we just read out. Um, And there's a lot of detail there. But even I, I don't think it's literal. But I do like all the connections there for some sort of wolf specific reasons, which Mm -hmm. is first of all fighting in the Korean War, um, but also the connection between that kind of weird sense of hopelessness and and being imprisoned when you're not really imprisoned which is kind of what the antechamber is mm-hmm. that's kind of a description for i'm sure how wolf would view north korea and frankly probably how it really is um but there's also something that seems right about that feeling and to connect that with an office for wolf i mm, mean like yeah. that sense of being in this sort of static long-term kind of horrible situation i mean that's a little bit what four lazen is like too and so, so you see the antechamber as a metaphor for or, North korea yeah i mean again i don't know that it's this is more the sense of like wolf the artist sitting here sort of like just whether consciously or not channeling a whole lot of different things in to make this horrible strange weird place that he has but it with the way that he talks about things in other times, um, in other works, it fits that there's something about that attitude towards North Korea and this sort of long legendary, but false history (laughs) that, (laughs) that created a sort of very hopeless world. Now I like that. And maybe I don't think that Wolf was trying to say that, Severian's world is actually somehow tied to North Korea. Like, I, I don't mm. think there's that. I just don't see. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, but I, I, that I just have a hard time connecting this particular place to that just because you're like, well, how did people get yeah. from the 20th century to there? But I'm fairly convinced that all of that stuff is definitely there in Wolf's head. Yeah, it seems to fit really well. Yeah, I don't think it's literally part of the plot, but I absolutely think it's part of what's going into creating this place, which is so terrifying. Yeah. Well, Craig, as you know, I'm I'm just very uncomfortable with metaphorical interpretations. I I understand. And the thing is, I just feel like the specificity 
of the name Kim Lee Song is supposed to invite us to connect it to a specific person. And I mean, there's ways if you want to think about Lee, like L-E-E is how it is written in the text, but you could also spell it L-I. Which yeah, is well, when you write and, a capital I and an L, yeah. it, there's I mean, really not it. a whole lot of difference. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Wolf, Wolf wouldn't be above those kinds of things. No. I mean, he even explained some puns that are not the kind of puns that you think of as jokes, but that are more like you have to know exactly how he's thinking about it in order to get the joke. And, um, you know, it makes this name actually make sense because, as, as you were discussing before, uh, you talked to some uh, Korean speakers and they felt like the name Kim Lee Sung is just a wrong kind of name. It's kind of like someone having two last names. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. But I don't know. Do you feel like there's? I I really am favoring a a more literal connection to Kim Il Sung, but I don't know how that connection is real. It's kind of like I, I feel like there's a real general uh, actual connection between Jonas and Hathor, and I could not tell you exactly what that is. Yeah, and it could be too that it's supposed to connect to somehow 20th century Korea, but maybe Wolf didn't even really spell it out for himself. And it's just supposed to be part of the weirdness. Oh, yeah. here. I yeah, mean, yeah. I guess I just got through saying, how could it possibly be connected to 20th century stuff? <laughs> but we had the gardens, we had the jungle garden, mm-hmm. right? That's I true. Mean, you could be, yeah, a, these people could be escapees from, <laughs> from uh, Inari's mirrors, just like that be. plant, right? We do have yeah. a, precedent set of people of things living things escaping from the marriage which is crazy and like how <laughs> how that would happen it just seems like it, it just yeah it breaks all kinds of rules but i still think in certain ways even the jungle garden great breaks all kinds of other rules yeah that are going on in this world so right yeah so anyway sierra that was awesome yeah let's see and christopher taylor in his comments on the last episode also speculated on Reddit that Kim Lee Soong could be associated with Kim Il Soong. And on Reddit again, uh, Cafe in EMEA says, as it has been mentioned, definitely, Kim Lee Soong seems to be a miswriting of Kim Il Soong. I am Spanish. Our phonetics are exactly the same as the Japanese, and I bet it is also quite close to Korean. English, ooh, sounds like the Spanish-Japanese, you. And English, e, sounds like the Spanish and Japanese, I. I don't know what to make of the alteration of the order of I-L versus L-I. Jonas says that it was a quite common name during his childhood, a really common practice is to name your children after the dictator. Here in Spain, we had a lot of Franciscos and Francos during the 1939 to 1975 dictatorship of Francisco Franco, kind of like trying to protect mm-hmm. the child to gain the favor of the regime. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense for Kim Lee Sung to be specifically of North Korean origin. In fact, it makes a lot of sense that the first intergalactic empire that Syriaca tells us about is of North Korean origin. Hmm. That the reason why the intergalactic empire founded upon a communist 
totalitarian regime based on rational collectivism against irrational subjectivism is said to have lost its humanity. What in the first place took him out of the rainforest toward civilization? Might the spaceship giving Jonas Greek literature be again the rebellion of machines in Syriaca's story, which brought back arts and irrationality to humankind? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been interesting. Yeah, because I've been examining Syriaca's story in a Patreon post in anticipation that it might illuminate something about Jonas's story or the Brown Book stories. It's public facing. So if you go to the patreon.com rereading wolf, you can read it and offer suggestions. And yeah, I noticed that there seems to be a a kind of a samey 70s style science fiction dehumanization period. And it, it probably does look a lot like, uh, you know, an SF paradise envisioned by a North Korean political theorist. So, hmm. yeah. I do like the idea that the ship's specifically giving Greek literature to kind of like jumpstart uh, yeah. humanistic culture again. That's kind of interesting. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I feel like Jonas on the spaceship must be a robot, but I don't know. Yeah. But we're still open still, to other yeah. ideas. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, I agree with that, but I, yeah, just still. Yeah. Well, you know, the robots are, are enjoying that literature. That's would be what they brought back. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this idea, he says, is reinforced by the fact that it is again, a further subversion already present in the text. Asia, the Orwellian Asia is in fact North America subjugated by the megatherians. It is the communist North Korea who made it to the stars, who attained the glorious state of an intergalactic empire. And it also links to the main topic of the book, galactic expansion is a path already trodden. It leads to dehumanization. Autark, the Autark, project is the way of humanity, the way to evolve without losing what makes us human. That is to say, a personal entity, not cells in a body, cogs of a mechanism, but the way to become God and become omnipotent, but still a person, the omega point of Teilhard de Chardin. Do you know that um, Yeah, Teilhard de Chardin. Yeah, he's a very... I guess you'd call him fringy, um, but he was super popular for a while, especially kind of with like folk who would be into um, theosophist kind of literature. But he was a little more respectable than occultist stuff, I guess. But he was <laughs> super popular for a while among a lot of people. But it was kind of this big metaphysical way to understand Christ as kind of a, not a historical thing, but really more of a sort of philosophical transcendental point where. Or a mushroom. Yeah. And yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But, but no, it's all about kind of like meshing ideas of evolution with theology so that we're all with the time evolving towards God consciousness. But a lot of people took it seriously for a while. Well, let's see, he goes on it. It also links the mystery regarding Jonas as to the bigger picture, and it is well-founded in what we know about Wolf's biography, what he was worried about, literary devices used in other places, and overarching topics. Even the stuff about the Navigator's funeral might in fact be referring to crew descendants, 
after generations of isolation, mixing up his myths, the myth about Kim Il-sung, leader, navigator of the country, and their real spaceship navigator, Kim Lee-sung, named after the dictator. That is partly why Gene Wolfe mixes myths in his stories of the Brown Book to show us how through generations, tales are deformed and mixed so we can recognize the same process when we face it in the antechamber. The stories of the Brown Book are not only anticlimactic plot digressions, they serve the plot in plenty of ways, such as this one. So that is really interesting, especially in that he is suggesting kind of emerging that the Kim Lee Sung or Kim Il Sung was a navigator, but it was a common name in his time mm. because it was associated with the dictator. Yeah. Huh. It's, it's an interesting little... possibility. I just, I, this is really cool because it gets something specifically about North Korea and the political dimension of that. This is, mm-hmm. there would be a lot to unpack there. And I just wish we had more in the text to point towards it, but it's a fascinating to me understanding of what kind of the history was here. Like the idea that, yeah, something about, I mean, there's, there's great connections there between the idea that going out into space is somehow connected to depersonalizing totalitarianism. And, um, and we see that in other places, of course, with Asia, with the Megatherians, there's, there, I I like that. I feel like it's promising. I don't really, the problem again, I don't know exactly if there's enough other stuff in the text to really work it out and make it solid, but there's a sort of very consistent thematic story you could tell there about, the, like they said, kind of this, this personal versus impersonal and the personal well, yeah, but, is the right way to do it. Well, think um, about it in this way. Kim Lee Song, Kim Il Song, being a common name when Jonas was a boy. This doesn't go back to our time. It only goes back to the time of the empire Mm -hmm. with a continuing depersonalized style that reaches back all the way to uh, North Korea's Mm -hmm. dictatorship. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot to chew on in that, but you know, if you are interested, follow the link. You know, go take another look and yeah. and see what you think. Yeah, yeah. Come up with something. Draw those draw those connections. I, okay. There's something that has to be be created for us. Wolf has left us two points and nothing but a bunch of empty space on the map where here there be dragons. And so, <laughs> yeah. I'm all trying to think now, is there some way to connect, like, the office and the sort of horrible experience he had in the war <laughs> together like in this room but i i don't really get much sort yeah. of veteran sense like i'm thinking about changeling too and how changeling has all that sort of coming home from the war and right yeah and you get home and your home is wrong and it's surreal and there's it turns out that people didn't even remember you exactly the way that you do and right uh, i don't know <laughs> But uh, regardless of who Kim Lee Song or the Navigator is, this didn't happen recently because Severian crouches down to look her in the eye and says, 
No one wears fulgent clothes at funerals, mistress, for fear they might be mistaken for members of my guild, which would be a slander of the dead in most cases. Yeah, so it would suggest that they were criminals who were executed or something like that. So black clothing at funerals is no longer done in Severian's cultural memory. And the only thing I'm wondering, she talks about burying men wear black, but does she mean actually priests? I mean, is she, she says burying about? people, right? Yeah, so like people, people who attend who, a funeral, right? I would say mm, could be. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know if it was supposed to be like, that's, that's more vague, but if she was specifically referring to priests in black at a funeral, yeah, that's, no, no, I'm, that's yeah. getting more, that, that would, that's more of the Catholic uh, reference. Yeah. 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 And, you know, incidentally, there's another reference to black clothing in a wolf novel, uh, There Are Doors. And I suspect that it has implications to the multiple, very similar universes in the Book of the New Sun and Earth of the New Sun, and maybe Severian's memory of events in the life of the first Severian. And I'm going to talk about it for just under a minute, but these are incredibly light spoilers, I think. Um, So... Here we go. Besides, it's short. Laradors is short. Go read it real quick. <laughs> yeah. The protagonist Green is talking about an alternate dimension where men die after having sex. And his psychiatrist says, oh, don't you realize that differences that extreme would lead to vastly different languages and cultures? And Green says that he thinks the other worlds are like strings on the neck of a guitar. You pluck one and the strings next to it vibrate as well. So in Green's world... Men wear black tuxedos at their wedding because other men in the other world do the same because at their wedding, they're soon going to die after they have sex. And so there's a reason for it in the other world. And the only reason for it in Green's world is that they do it in the other world. And anyway, it's not illuminating to this particular story, but I, I just think, I, I think we'll thought about black clothes and why we wear them. And besides, we haven't mentioned their doors, I think, ever. <laughs> well, it's high time. <laughs> anyway, Severian gets back to the scarf. He says, is this what you call a finding? Talos would call it a dropsy. And she nods and says, the whips leave them. And what you ought to do is push them out through the space under the doors because they'll come and take their things back. He can tell she's eyeing the burn on his cheek and he asks, these are the whips, the ones who do this to my cheek. Uh, who are they? I saw a green face. And she laughs and Severian says her laughter held the notes of little bells. And of course <laughs> it does because the antechamber is cosmically speaking the same place as the other locations with bells. Olden's library, the rag shop, the man apes cave. We're in the great rift peering roughly through the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And like the dark haired Noctua of the upcoming tale of the student and his son, she has midnight eyes. <laughs> so Severian says he saw a green face. And the girl says, so did I. I thought it was going to eat me. But, you know, she's not frightened at the moment because her mother told her, quote, the things you see in the dark don't mean anything. They're different almost every time. It's the whips that hurt. And she held me behind her between her and the wall. The funny things in the dark are, of course, exultants who 
appear to be teenagers or young adults, older boys, younger girls, at least in Thecla's memory. And speaking of Thecla's memory, when the girl says that, she notes a funny look on Severian's face as he gets that Thecla memory. Uh, maybe looking funny means his face is changing to a Thecla expression. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I take too. But just one other one other thing about that, calling them the whips, um, it's just sad that that's just part of her life, right? There's no sense that this could be right or wrong or good or mm -hmm. bad or just or unjust. It's just, nope, that's just what happens. And that's at night. Mommy yeah, says she'll try to protect me until I'm older, you know, right. but it's, that's just a force in their world. So yeah. So Severian starts to have a Thecla moment and what he remembers, he says, I recalled laughing with other people. Three were young men. Two were women of about my own age. Guibert handed me a scourge, a whip, with a heavy handle and a lash of braided copper, Lollian was preparing the firebird, which he would twirl on a long cord. All right, so here we have a memory of Thecla and her five friends, two young men, two girls, Thecla's age, or maybe teenage girls. They're getting ready to enter the antechamber with electrified copper whips mm -hmm. and also something called a firebird. That's something else. But I don't know what a firebird is. I can't find a definition of it beyond certain breeds of songbirds yeah. or a Stravinsky ballet or some kind of car by Pontiac. None <laughs> of these things I think are intended. There's also a firebird in Slavic mythology, a magical bird with feathers of fire. It has a role in a myth that has just about every Hamlet's mill element in it. It doesn't mm -hmm. have an entry in the lexicon Earthus. And I reached out to Mantis, and he doesn't have a flat explanation for it either. You twirl it. Now, it's possible for twirl to mean dangle from your fingers by its cord and spin it. But twirl is such a confusing word in that case to use in the absence of being paired with some synonym for dangle. So I think it's probably something that is spun over your head or in front of you. So... I talked about this with Mantis a lot and how the face, the green face, might be generated by spinning this purely hypothetical firebird. Uh, maybe when you spin in front of you, it generates a big green face. Or maybe they project a great big green face to hide them coming in through the door. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they could have just done that by turning out the lights in the room before entering. Uh, Michael noted that something like this would be hard to get through the door if you were spinning it over your head. I'm not really satisfied by any explanation of the green face, but Michael attempted to break down step-by-step step what we know happens. And I think that is the best way. At the end of chapter 15, The Fool's Fire, Severian says, uh, remember, it's total darkness. My eye was caught by a gleam of greenish light so faint that even in the darkness, it was scarcely visible. And at once there came a murmur of voices echoing and re-echoing through the wide low, crooked room. I heard Jonas scrambling to his feet. I did the same, but I was no sooner up than I was blinded by a flash of blue fire. The blue fire, I think we understand it. It's the electrified copper whips that hit Severian in the face. The greenish light at this point is very dim. Severian seems to get whipped first, which is suggesting that he was very close to the exultant's entrance into the room. But Maybe he's not the closest because there is a murmur of voices before he gets hit. He says, uh, somewhere farther off, blue fire flashed again and a woman cried out. So 
maybe then they move deeper into the room. We know the little girl's mother blocked the whips from hitting her, so the woman crying out could have been her. Then Jonas curses in a language that Svarian doesn't know. And then the amorphous green light starts to change. He says, the greenish light grew stronger. And while I watched, it gathered itself into a monstrous face that glared at me with saucer eyes and then faded to mere dark. And then at last, all around the cavernous room, voices screamed, wept, and prayed. Over the wild din, I heard the clear laughter of a young woman, and then it was gone. And now we get some more information from the girls. Uh, these are whips, the ones who do this. Who are they? I saw a green face. And she says, so did I. I thought it was going to eat me. Mama says the things you see in the dark don't mean anything. They're different almost every time. It's the whips that hurt. She held me behind her and between her and the wall. So this face is not something that occurs as they are entering. They are well into the room by the time the green light finally morphs into a face, although its source seems very dim at first. But the little girl doesn't seem to have ever seen the green face before, at least not this face. It seems there is some kind of extra display every time they enter. It's, it's almost always mm -hmm. different every time. And the prisoners know that it is incidental to the one thing that is always the same, the whips. So, Craig, maybe this is some kind of holiday. Uh, you know, it's a side ritual that's grown yeah. up and the face and whatever they sometimes see is like floats in a parade or fireworks in a celebration, always different. And in that case, the firebird might, in fact, be the source. You, you spin it and it forms a sort of face. And that's why the bearer doesn't twirl it until they're well into the room. This is quite wild grasping speculation. But anyway, there's... There's no further reference to a green face in this book that I know of. If this is part of a ritual, it's not one that Nicorette is familiar with. In his chapter guide, Mantis suggests that the big green face could be a Wizard of Oz reference. Mm -hmm. a another reference uh, could be the big green face of Juturna. Uh, but honestly, I can't understand why that works either. Even, you know, the inviting Hamlet's Mill connectivity escapes me beyond blue and green connectivity. Uh, it's just a big mystery. And it seems to be one that Wolf wanted to leave with us, which is okay. It's not that big a deal like Agulus's mask bans or why Severian's mother was arrested. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot about the Oz face that I think is really cool and feels like a shadow. But no, I think in the end, it sounds like just something else that's meant to terrify the hell out of everybody <laughs> yeah. illusions. And, um, and it would make sense that the firebird is the thing that does that. This is when I'm not sure if it is a puzzle you're supposed to figure out, or if it's just supposed to be further terrifying things. Yeah. Yeah. But although the fact that it's green always does make me think green with blue undines, arcs and, green and everything. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you've got, I mean, you've got the, the good, well, in this case, you've got both blue and green being sort of terrifying. Blue is painful and green is terrifying. And mm -hmm. yeah, but as far as if there's a further significance to the face, if there is, it's lost on me. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I tend to think it's just supposed to be something that strange yeah, and wild and disorienting and truly there. Yeah. To do just that. Yeah. Woof. What have you done? 
Uh, let's see. Uh, Saint Guibert was a 10th century aristocrat who was involved in several military campaigns and then founded a monastery in Belgium. It was a politically connected sort of monastery. It was fortified and even had its own currency. The privileged upbringing and aristocracy certainly fits here. Uh, Saint Lalian. Uh, there's at least two of these guys. One was a Scottish hermit, and Catholic Online only says he's from the 11th century, but we know nothing about him because his actual biography was obscured by 5th century legends, and I'd <laughs> have liked to get a look at those. The other is an Eastern Orthodox Saint Lalian, the elder, who was martyred uh, by the sword, and that's all I got. Probably mm -hmm. doesn't matter too much. Anyway, uh, the little girl tells the variant your friend's waking up, which we'd know anyway, because Jonas calls him and Jonas says, I, I thought you were gone away. And Severian says, that would be hard. <laughs> <laughs> he says, oh yeah, I remember now. <laughs> so some slight amnesia. Yeah. So that's, I mean, memory problems. Mm -hmm. We didn't have loss of total memory, but maybe that's a resurrection. Thing. Maybe. Yeah, um, sure. But either way, this is still Jonas being really, really out of it. For a mm -hmm. long time and seeming like he's getting worse, right? Like even in after, some ways, yeah, yeah. Even after the claw shine for him, it does seem like he's not doing so hot. Right, yeah. But anyway, if you see Jonas's subsequent changes as being caused by Severian using the claw on him, you know, I the amnesia does make sense. Uh he did put it on his forehead, but this is very slight amnesia compared to Dorcas and yeah. uh, Cornetminius. And if anything, Jonas's memory though of all things, does get sharper, right? As mm -hmm. a matter of fact, yep. we, we finally find out what this place is called. Mm -hmm. Two chapters after we alerted to it in the chapter title. <laughs> Jonas says, do you know what this place is called, Severian? They told me yesterday, it's the antechamber. I see you already knew. And Severian says, no, no, I didn't. You nodded. <laughs> yeah, and Severian says, I recalled the name when you pronounced it. And I knew it was the right one. I, Thecla was here, I think. She never considered it a strange place for a prison. I suppose because it was the only one she had seen before she was taken to our tower. But I find I do. Individual cells, or at least several separate rooms, seem more practical to me. Perhaps I'm only prejudiced. He says that uh, Thecla was here once, and Thecla's perspective on it was different than his. To her, this was what a prison looked like. Yeah. She just called it the antechamber. And so Severian never connected that word with this place until this moment. And so at least Severian is getting a taste of what it means to rely on an unreliable narrator. Right? Yeah. And that cool little moment where he says no, but he nods at the same time is mm -hmm. kind of, it seems like maybe what Jonas is doing, but there's definitely some dissonance going on, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. I mean, which I just think that's cool because literally what happens there is Severian nods and says no, right? Which right. if you're watching it, that would be a really weird thing. <laughs> and it, it would just catch you immediately as, oh, that's so, that's messed up. You're right. um, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I'm just reaching here for everything to be about Jonas, but it does seem kind of cool that you've got Severian who's dealing with this reasonably well, even though he's split in two different ways. But then you've got Jonas, who for some reason has fallen apart yeah. while maybe going through something similar. Right. So, Well, anyway, Jonas is still laying down, but he pulls himself up to a sitting position against the wall. We get an implication here that Jonas's face is brown. Mm 
And this is the first reference to his skin complexion that I can recall. Mm-hmm. Severian writes, his face had gone pale under the brown. His face is pretty sweaty too. To dry his forehead, Severian will use a square of flannel that he kept to polish his sword blade. And now he starts reflecting on the architecture. He knows a drop ceiling when he sees it. Yep. It appears that neither Severian nor Thecla know enough to recognize the paleo architecture of the room. But <laughs> Jonas says that this big room, quote, used to be several suites. And he says, quote, probably, but I think we're supposed to accept his induction. He says, the walls have been torn away and a uniform floor laid over all the different old floors. And I'm sure that's what we used to call a drop ceiling. And he says, if you lift the panels, you can see the original structure. So Severian's curious. So he tries, but, you know, tall as he is, his fingers can just barely brush the rectangular pane. So it's probably what, a nine foot ceiling? But the little girl says, pick me up. I'll do it. So he picks her up by her waist and it takes her a few seconds to unwedge the ceiling tile. So it's probably not fiberglass foam or asbestos. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's you know wood or some other slightly heavier material than we're used to. But she does it and dust comes showering down as it does right now. If, that, if that's what you do in an office, that's exactly what you'll get. Mm-hmm. And they can see, quote, a network of slender metal bars and through them a vaulted ceiling with many moldings and a flaking painting of clouds and birds. So this room was probably not originally a 20th century office room. It was something else. And maybe these were lodgings for guests, and then they tore out the walls and made it a more conventional big room. It's been repurposed. Yeah. Or unless the the vaulted ceilings with clouds and birds, I mean, just thinking too of like a painted church ceiling. Oh, it could be, yeah. Yeah, uh, sure. But just when when they said vaulted, that's what, I mean, anything could be painted weird, but the vaulted just made me think it's some kind of special showroom. But Jonas says it was, it was, it was originally a a series of a suite of rooms. Suites. Yeah. Yeah. You you think people with nothing else to do uh, and who in the hundreds or maybe thousands of years have been put here would have you know, poked around the idea of tunneling through the ceiling, but (laughs) then we'd have no story. So unless, yeah, I'm assuming it just goes really high after that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Severian confirms, quote, you're right. There was an old ceiling above this one for a room much smaller than this. But how did you know? He says, because I talked to those people yesterday. There seems to be something he learned in his conversation with the people that he's not sharing. Anyway, he rubs his face with his fleshy steel hands and tells Severian to send the little girl away so they can talk. And Severian sends her away. But Severian was a kid and he knows kids and he figures that she crossed the room and then creeped along the wall where she could listen. It's not that big a room. Jonah says, I feel as if I were waking up. I think I said yesterday that I was afraid I would go mad. I think perhaps I'm going sane and that is as bad or worse. So, yeah, Michael Andre Druisi uh, Mantis, he thinks that this is the effect of the claw on Jonas. He thinks Jonas's human parts are being resurrected. Uh, I think the first part is likely true, but I doubt the other parts because my mile high theories about Jonas's <laughs> conflict with his. But I think Jonas has had access to some of the human parts, memories and personalities. But I do think it's possible that Jonas has been walking around in a half dream state. He, he knew facts of everything, like we said, but mm-hmm. 
perhaps not their meanings as relates to him. Yeah. That's the closest I can get to making sense out of this, that maybe he did. Cause I mean, like we said, all those conversations that they have in the beginning of claw, it's clear that Jonas is aware of how different he is from Severian and all these times when he has to sort of hedge things because he can't really explain what it is. And maybe the actual fact is that it's not that he knew clearly where he was from and was hiding it from Severian, but maybe even he was kind of unsure Mm -hmm. about exactly. I didn't know he was unsure, right? Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Or just, you know, he just kind of had to be that way. And maybe that's why falling in with love with Jolinta was so easy because he was, yeah, just kind of wandering. Before. Right, but maybe now it's like, yeah, things are clicking into place. And but he doesn't fall out of love with Jolenta, and no. he says, this is mm-hmm. the first time he's ever fallen in love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but that's the closest I can get to sort of making sense of Jonas is that he must like I think before I had always thought no Jonas had to be clear on what what he really was before, but now I'm thinking no maybe he really did maybe he really was sort of confused and just that's why he latches on to Severian. Maybe that's why he's so willing to be his, you know, servant or follower yeah. or whatever at the beginning, just because he needs something to do. But right now that he can kind of remember his history in a lot more detail. And it actually, you know, like, I like that way of putting it. You're like, he knew the facts, but not the meaning. And now, mm-hmm. now he really gets it. And right. it's freaking him. Yeah. <laughs> it's not quite as satisfying as I would like it to be, but at least it gives his character like some sense. Right. So Severian has a memory. I don't understand why this memory is significant. I do think it means something, something we ought to know maybe about Jonas, but I don't understand what that is. Uh, this next part is kind of interesting though. He had been sitting on the canvas pad where we had slept now he slumped against the wall, just as I have since seen a corpse sit with its back to a tree. I don't know of an event like this in this book, where Severian sees a corpse do that. And if it's foreshadowing, it escapes me right now. I thought perhaps that he would find Miles that way, but no, Miles is laying prone. Yeah. Yep. I know. That's when I read it, I thought, oh yeah, Miles. And then yeah, I did nope. the same thing. I went back and <laughs> nope. So... I mean, and certainly he's going to see plenty of corpses when he gets to the battlefront. Just it would have been so perfect if Mm -hmm. that was Miles. Yeah. And in his chapter guide, uh, Mantis detects a reference to Stephen Crane's The Red Badge of Courage, where the protagonist encounters a corpse seated just like that. Uh, Mantis notes that Wolf compared the Book of the New Sun to The Red Badge of Courage in a 1986 interview with Inner Zone magazine. He said... His book had a similar progression of a young man approaching war, but Wolf wanted to tell it in an SF setting. We're going to take a break now. (laughs) This is a, this is, this is not a long chapter, but it's a dense chapter. I mean, it's only like what, seven pages or something. Yeah. Yeah. We just keep talking and talking and talking. Yeah. Yeah. This is. Jonas is so important to me. I just, it's a problem I have to figure out. (laughs) I just like him so much and I feel so bad for him that I want to know what's actually going on. It sounds like a great story. I'll tell you that. Um, (laughs) Wolf should have filled this one out (laughs) just a little bit. 
Well, it is kind of weird, like how to write a story that other people get to fill in the blanks and write their own story, but yeah. to still make it a good story. I yeah. can tell it's uh, a very good story. I really want to know about Jonas's story because it's a good one. And I don't understand why Wolf didn't just, you know, spend a, a week or so actually filling that one out. So. <laughs> But if you got any ideas about what's going on so far with Jonas, reach out to us with your comments, your thoughts, your corrections and complaints. And we hope you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, email, or the Patreon site. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or on Reddit or wherever the kids review podcasts nowadays. But uh, do tell your Wolfreen friends, whatever you do. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. And may you not be whipped by giant green faces. I'll just let that go and <laughs> cut that cut that off wherever you want. <laughs> Jonas's inspiration was Budris and Hugh mm-hmm. and who? Yeah. And Hugh. And Hugh. <laughs> that the Tortures Guild predates the I is this something I wrote? Hang on. Trying to trying to I thought that was you. That does sound like me. That's more it, I recognize my voice suddenly and yeah. uh you kind of I mean we were talking last couple chapters um about Oh, shoot, was it last chapter or the one? No, it will have been two chapters by the time we record this <laughs> where, okay, I'll do it this way. That you'll, we hope you'll bring them, try again. And we hope you'll bring us priest clothing, which hmm. is weird because that, I don't know if I do. Actually, no, I'm going to take that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't mind the sun sometimes. The image is a show. I can taste you on my lips and smell you in my clothes.
in a nensillary and softly spoken lies. I never know just how you look through other people's eyes. Alright. Never know just how you look. <coughs> Come on. Hope for the best, expect the worst. Do, 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 do. Die of thirst, no way of knowing which way it's going. Oh, for the best, expect the worst. Oh, I just created your bloopers for you, Craig. I did, sorry.